0: You are listening to the Logos Broadcast with Fergus James Murphy. Today I am joined by Charlie Bird, former Chief News Correspondent for RTE and former Washington Correspondent for RTE. Charlie has made a recent return to the public eye and I'm very glad to be joined by him today. So Charlie, uh, thanks a million for talking to me this afternoon. Uh,
1: Love, love, great.
0: Um, I want you to talk to me a bit about Obama uh, because you have a picture of him there behind you and so much has changed obviously since since you were there in, in the thick of american politics and um, so what what was all that like for you and um, specifically relating to him and and that all that went on there
1: well i had the first of all I, I, when i got the job as washington correspondent it coincided with uh, barack obama's uh, inauguration and his entry into the white house but the most remarkable part of it for me was I ha- helped cover the election, uh, uh, his his first election when he was elected president. And um, one of the standout, well, sorry, probably the standout moment. And one of the big standout moments of my career was that I was in Grant Park uh, in Chicago on the night that he delivered his acceptance speech. OK. Uh, um, so when, and believe it or not, when when John McCain uh, conceded defeat on that night, when John McCain did not hang around for an hour, for a day, or for two day, or two weeks, uh, and um, when John McCain did something which was absolutely the correct thing to do, and which most um, candidates or presidential candidates have done in the past, they have conceded defeat, and I was there in Grant Park when. Barack Obama, and it was crowded. Grand Park was crowded. It was, I don't know what Irish time, what time but it was 10 or 12 o'clock at night. And there were tens of thousands of people there. And to see Barack Obama walk out onto the stage with uh, Michelle and the two kids was just, and to hear him speak, uh, deliver his acceptance speech was just absolutely remarkable. And, you know, one, again, the thing we've always heard from Barack Obama, you know, it wasn't green states or sorry, it wasn't blue states or red states. It was the United States of America. He was just such a powerful and still is a powerful orator and an incredible person. So th- the truth is, I am a big Barack Obama fan.
0: And you traveled, obviously, around the country a little bit. And um, I saw in a documentary that you made, <clears throat> he wasn't popular all over, No, um, which is something not. that isn't obviously apparent if you're only looking at washington isn't
1: it yes absolutely not well we know so anybody who knows anything about the united states uh, it's it's a it's a divided country but you know most places are divided you go to you go to britain you know there's a tory side of it there's a labor mm. side of it you come to ireland yes we're divided as well so all countries i mean that's part of a healthy democracy it's a part of a healthy democracy mm. uh, but the most important thing in a healthy democracy is when you lose you put up your hand and you say i lost and well, that's I... what's really important and that's what's happening at the moment a healthy democracy uh, in in the united states for me and i a, first i'm going to tell you something you may think i'm mad but last night i woke up at half two in the morning and i couldn't sleep and do you know why i couldn't sleep because i was worrying about what's going to happen in the united states Genuinely, I'm worried what's happening there. That if he ends up in a situation where uh, Donald Trump will not concede defeat, how, is he going to engineer what could turn out to be um, a bloodless political coup? Now, people are saying, no, I've watched Meet the Press today, another Jake Tapper, and everybody says it's not going to happen, but I'm at home in Ireland at 2 o'clock in the morning. waking twisting, twisting around round to my bed saying, because... That's how interested I am. I consider America an amazing country and I know it's divided. I accept it's divided. I went into rural Pennsylvania and you met people and you know it's when you're trying to describe it to people in Ireland you walk around and you see people carrying guns and they're all over the place Say, Jesus Christ what's going on because we know in Ireland you don't see that and People carrying guns, it has a throwback to the peace process and to the IRA and all of those things. And sometimes you have to scratch your head to uh, get this around. <laughs> and and uh, when I was there, the this open carry issue, it was bo- bubbling up at the time. And just outside um, uh, Washington, I mean, hundreds of people turned up on, on a green there protesting carrying guns to say they were demanding open carry in Washington and to see with all sorts of guns machine guns, everything
0: No it's, it's certainly editing. certainly foreign, foreign to a, an Irish eye for sure um, yeah. and so you you, you you left Washington after 18 months there Yeah, and can you talk to me a little bit about how you feel about that decision in hindsight, was it, was it the right call and are you glad with how it worked out?
1: Uh, in one sense, I should never have gone there, because I mean, I ended up in RTE. I spent I've spent thirty eight years of my life. Well, I'm finished now. Gone six or seven years, but I spent thirty eight years of my life working for RTE. That's a long time, and I uh, I am lucky. I'm really lucky. I ended up as the chief news correspondent, the chief reporter. Um, and I was really blessed. And you know, I spent most of my polit- my political reporting life standing outside Leinster House, the Parliament in Dublin, every day of the week, <laughs> nearly 300 uh, days a year. And, you know, I wanted to move on. And everybody, you know, sometimes we make decisions that you do uh, impromptu and say, I'll do it. And uh, with hindsight, I probably should not have gone to, uh, to Washington that I should have allowed someplace. And, and then the, the real motivating reason was, well, there were two reasons. First of all, uh, my eldest daughter was having her, um, her first child and my first grandkid, and uh, I just wanted to be, come home. And also um, I was in a relationship uh, and uh, with somebody who worked in RTE and she was traveling backwards and forwards uh, from Dublin to, to Washington. And I just, at that stage, and at the time of my life, I said, no, I said, I want to um, I want to go back. And I know it caused a bit of a feck up for all I'm being blunt. I accept that. And it was probably not a good decision uh, for me initially to go. But listen, I went and I spent 18 months there. And there were a remarkable 18 months. And the fact that I spent those 18 months covering the presidency of Barack Obama was uh, like, it was a bonus for me.
0: In fact, Absolutely.
1: I know you first certainly... can I say one other want... thing? I was so captured by what happened. When Barack Obama was um, re-elected, I actually, on my own steam, on that January, four years after, three and a half years after, two and a half years after I left, I actually flew back to Washington to be there when Barack Obama was inaugurated for the second time.
0: Wow, so, so on you, my you're already,
1: own team, yeah. Yes. So was, in a way, in a way, I was a groupie.
0: I was just that word just came to mind. And did you yeah, ever? I'm they say you should never meet your heroes. Did you ever meet him? Yes, I did.
1: And um, if I, uh, I don't know if I can walk. Um, if I can look out through the window here, and I can see ten photographs of myself and Barack Obama in the Oval Office. And in the last one, he has his his, hand, his hands around my shoulder.
0: So you got of um, <laughs> course the first uh, one.
1: and I'll tell you how, how it came about, because it was at the time that he was um, trying to get the um, the vote through Congress for um, Obamacare, right, and it was balanced on a knife edge, and um, on that time Brian Cowan, who was the Taoiseach, and Hall Martin, who's now the T-shirt, was the Minister for Foreign Affairs, it was the Patrick's Day celebration. And we were brought into the White House and into the Oval Office. And um, like every cheeky reporter, I wanted to get a word in. And I just looked at Barack Obama. And first of all, I put my hand out and I broke the rule. And I said, I put my hand out to shake hands. And he shook my hand and he looked at me. And then I said to him, uh, President, you know, you if you came to if you came to ireland because they want you to come uh, and there was a reciprocal gesture and that travel to ireland would get you your healthcare vote in in congress would you would you would you do that deal and he burst out laughing and he put his arm around me and i have a series of photographs
0: and didn't he say if if you i wish you had a vote or something like that yeah he did yeah yeah, yeah. He said, I I wish if if you had could a vote. help him out yeah. Good yeah. stuff. Well, speaking of guns and conflict and division and all that, uh, you, were, you played a, a role in communication with the Republican movement in uh, some very turbulent times in Ireland. So can you talk to me about what that role was like and, and that experience on a day-to-day practical level? What kind of interactions did you have and, and what do they consist of?
1: Well, yeah, it brings you back. First of all, I have to paint a picture for the people who are listening uh, to the podcast. There was a time in, um, in Ireland, in, in RTE, which we're the national broadcaster, when you could not interview a member of Sinn Féin. There was a ban on members of Sinn Féin, who's the party, if you like, who were allied to the IRA, who were the political wing. So it was called section 31 of the Broadcasting Act and therefore you could not interview members of Sinn Féin so they were banned from the airwaves and it was a very controversial um, ban and the journalists that I was involved in the National Union of Journalists we campaigned against it because but eventually section 31 was lifted and it was lifted by the Minister for uh, Telecommunications at the time who was now Michael D Higgins who was our president and it was the Labour to the Gale government who lifted them. And um, so, at around that time in the early 90s, the peace process in the North was developing, really important. Behind the scenes, things were moving in the undergrowth. And, you know, there were so many twists and turns. Now, up to that, the early 90s, the, when the IRA issued a statement, the BBC or some newspaper would always get the statements, and RTE wouldn't. And then orty took a conscious decision that they wanted to be in, and that act. So, in other words, um, that we would have uh, that we have, have some form of a communication with the IRA. So, in other words, that we were understand. It was all to do with the peace process. That's a really important. This wasn't to, you know, we were trying to understand what was going on in the peace process.
0: So, it wasn't covering <laughs> this. Many people died today. It was no, more, no, no, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, focusing no, on the no. on the constructive. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that that was part of it. Now, obviously, sometimes something happened and you cover that as well. But I wasn't I wasn't a daily person reporting, but eventually it was set up and I won't I cannot tell you how it was set up. Well, I can say one thing, and this is not a state secret. The man who was now Northern correspondent, Northern editor, Tommy Gorman, who was the Sligo correspondent at the time, he helped me. Uh, with the way of getting the communication. And I was the person then who was picked by my boss in uh, RT at the time, man called Joe Mulholland, who's the director of news. And I was the person nominated to be the person who would meet the IRA and deal with them. And so, Fergus, I, can, I will never forget ever in my life, forget the first day that I met my first IRA. I had four of them. Over the 10 or 11 years until the decommissioning, all of that happened, I had four different IRA contacts. And I'm going to be straight up, first, none of them were household names. None of them was, were people. I was just going
0: to ask about that. No, yeah, well, I'm telling we you, don't know none them. of them
1: were just in case you're going to think. And see, these were members of the Army Council. So they were serious players, but they were not household names. Uh, I. Were,
0: not uh, Jerry Adams. <laughs> sorry.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm, but, uh, anyway, so long story short, my first meeting with my first, his name was, sorry, and this is the name I've given him, was Brendan. Sorry, we had names, um, was Brendan. And I met Brendan uh, outside uh, Bewley's hotel uh, or restaurant on Westmoreland Street. At, at some time, and it was early in the afternoon. I didn't know who I was going to meet. I didn't have seen a picture of him, but he had knew who I was. So I walked up to Beauley's hotel and um, I stood there and this person shuffled up to me and said, I'm Brendan, uh, follow me. So for the next about 10 minutes, we walked around town, down by Fleet Street, maybe through Temple Bar, all over the place. And he kept looking over his shoulder and. Fergus, I was scared shitless. I hope. It, can I use that in the podcast? Of course,
0: absolutely. We've heard worse, you know. Okay, yeah. scared totally. So,
1: shitless. when you say
0: looking over the shoulder, is that looking for Gardi or, or well, what's he I worried about? Richard Do you Brandt, know what I mean?
1: I yeah, I don't. Yeah, he was. Anyway, he was looking. And we, we eventually ended up down on the Liffey near the four courts. And um, we went into um, a cafe, which, was, which is still there. Uh, we had books in it called uh, The Winding Staircase. And we went up there and he sat down and uh, we introduced ourselves and we chatted. And then I built up a rapport with um, with Brendan. And uh, then eventually I moved on to, I can't think, to be honest, though, all their names slip me now. Um, but can I tell you one other story? Because it's one of the most remarkable. Oh, of course. So, the last time that the, so the IRA, they broke their ceasefire and when Canary Wharf happened, if people remember Canary Wharf, they exploded bombs in, in London and a number of people were killed. And I won't go into it now, but I feel very guilty that the two or three people who died at Canary Wharf, they died because of me, because I wasn't in the place when the, the IRA used to send me, you know, ring me and say, listen, something's going to happen. And they rang me and I wasn't on that day. I wasn't in the RT newsroom. But eventually, about six months later, when Bertie Hearn was Taoiseach, Tony Blair was the prime minister in England, it was during the summer. So when the IRA introduced their second ceasefire and their final ceasefire. And this is when the peace process was really motoring on. I was the only journalist to be given the IRA's statement and it was to take place In Dundalk on a Saturday morning, and it was all choreographed. So, uh, British Prime Minister Tony Blair knew, Bertie Ahern knew, it was going to be, they were going to announce at around eight o'clock in the morning that the IRA was going into a second ceasefire. It was going to be a huge deal, a really big deal. So, I drove up, it was the Fairways Hotel on the outskirts of uh, Dundalk, and I was there. Uh, to meet my, Patrick was his name Um, and uh, the appointed time was eight o'clock and I drove in and I parked my car beside Patrick's car and um, I got into the driver's seat of his car and he looked at me, he said, we can't do anything here. He says, there's a guarded car over there so you have to um, follow me. So we drove further into Dundalk and we drove into a garage. and this is a true story. Uh, he parked the car in a car wash in a car wash. And this is a member of the, uh, the, the Army council handing over what is meant to be one of the biggest moments of their life. And he handed, he said, um, "There's this statement: You're to write this. I'm going to get out and I'm going to fiddle under my bonnet." And you're to write it down, and then when I come back, uh, you can head off. So, in other words, the appointed time that it was all going to be choreographed to be out on the airwaves, RTE, everything, BBC, the Prime Minister in England was waiting for it. I think Mo Molum actually was uh, the minister, the Northern Ireland minister at the time. I might be slightly wrong about that, but definitely it was Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern. And so it was all at a kilter. They were all ringing. Where was it? There was no statement on RTE saying the ceasefire would come into into play because we were delayed.
0: So He's why couldn't the... he just give it to you in the car? Why the need well, he, to well, do Stanley, all that? He, he wanted to make sure there was nobody following us and
1: watching us. So I sat into the in and I wrote it by hand, and he got back in and he sat down and then he said, "Okay, read the statement now." So I said. Um, I started off saying statement by the IRA and he said, no, that's not right. What does it say? I said, it says, oh, Lena Heron, that's what you're to say. He wouldn't accept IRA. It was bizarre. Wow. But I, and I, sorry, I gave the handwritten statement. It's in my book. And I eventually gave it to the National Library. So eventually when all these things come out, it'll be there. Mm. So I, I was late. So when I got out of his car, I rang Orty to say, uh, they were saying, Where the fuck are you, Charlie? We've we've had the we've had we've had the Taoiseach's office on to us, they've had uh, the British Prime Minister's office on to them. Where's the IRA statement? And I said, I explained what happened. So what they had to do, I missed the nine o'clock news as well. So on a Saturday morning, there's playback, so they had to break in. I had they had to cut off playback, and I had to um, do a news about the um, the ceasefire.
0: So did they did they did a phone call, or how, how did that work? Well,
1: yeah, I, like, I got
0: in, I went I got to a hotel. For, uh, I
1: think I went to Drawder or whatever it was, some place down the road, and I ran into a hotel, and uh, I just I rang the I rang. I'm and God forbid, I know who the programmer then. The chief sub-editor at the time was a man called Peter Driscoll, who is long past a really fantastic g- guy. And He said, "Charlie, everybody's been shouting, looking for you, because the is on Saturday mornings. not many people around, but there was Downing Street onto onto the T-shirt office, Bertie Ahern's office, onto Worthy. Where is the statement? So Where did all they-
0: the other guys? If if it, it seems like a pretended secrecy or something. If 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 the T-shirt knew and if the British yeah, but people knew, so so it, did, the but news, they, did the news, did the news people know, like the other people yeah, in the newsroom, so did so they know what was people, going on?
1: Well, they, they expected, but until it's actually delivered, until the iron makes a public announcement, and this is how they do it, they issue okay. a statement, this is it. They don't, they don't, it has to be there in black and white. Yes. And, uh, and these are, I mean, in one sense, uh, Fergus, I was like, some people, sometimes I call myself a messenger boy or a postman. But there were times, and I could take hours to explain. But there were times when I got a real understanding of what was going on. When there were difficult periods, initially the IRA contact would say to you, "I'm here to give you this. I can't say anything else." But eventually, I developed a rapport with them, and I would sometimes ask them a question. You know, "What do you think something's going to happen?" Well, I said, "Look, you know, well, you know, I can only say this, but you know, by the his facial expression." or whatever, um, you know, you know that something is, um, is, is, is happening. So they did have any, as, as, as we moved on in the relationship, they became more open because then they were more confident in the peace process. Okay. You know, this was a, this was a major, I mean, I I know we shouldn't be talking about all this, but I had another day when, when people thought it was going to be decommissioning, of weapons and i was told asked my bosses to see if the ira would let us film decommissioning now i was fuck, excuse, sorry i was mad in the head don't don't, don't worry about the
0: language yeah you're fine
1: so <laughs> i was mad in the head uh, but i contacted my uh i had a conduit in dublin who something that i couldn't ring the ira it wasn't a question that, but i had a conduit in dublin who I could ring and say, "Listen, can you put me in contact with my uh, IRA uh, contact?" And on this occasion, I said, "Look, I wanted to talk to them." And um, uh, it was on I think it was a Thursday or Wednesday evening in, in the summertime. And um, this person said, "Okay, we're going. To, I'll take you up to um, near the Cooley Mountains between uh, Dundalk and Newry." And into not Warren Point, the place is just across from Warren Point. He' come to my head now in a second. And um, so as we were, we went into a little pub uh, and something something water, anyway, it's just across from from uh, from Warren Point. and um, I went into this bar and sat down. so with my con- not with my contact, but the person was bringing me to meet them and uh, then the ira person came in and i sat down and i discussed with them and i said is there any chance of this or that and they said well i'll take your request um back. actually it was it was the first ira statement anyway so they um, they said look i'll take your request back to the powers that be and as i was leaving with my dublin contact the IRA man said to me, do you mind if you give me a lift? Now, you may not know, Fergus, where the Cooley Mountains are. The British are on one side of it, the special branch. It's one of the scariest places in Ireland. It's like wow. um, at, at, at that time when the IRA were at war with people. And I said, yeah, okay, okay. This is a summer's evening. And so he got into the back of the car and we drove back over over the mountains, and we were halfway over the mountains near a place called, you're going to love this, it's called the Long Woman's Grave. Wow. You can Google it and see about it. It's one of the most famous places in the Cooley Mountains. It goes back to the 16 or 1400s, I don't know, so far back in uh, uh, the mythology of Ireland, but the Long Woman's Grave, anyway. We were driving back over these twisty roads on this summer's evening with a senior member of the IRA in the back, And all I will say, another most interesting person sitting beside me in the front. And uh, eventually, Brendan said, stop. And he said, leave me out here. And he got out and he walked down the road. And the person who was sitting beside me um, turned around and said, would you hold on a moment? And this person walked out. I got out of my car as well and walked back after the other person. And I watched the two of them embrace one another. And it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. They had their arms around one another. And when this person walked back to my car and got in, I said, I was a bit nervous. I said, "Do you mind me asking why you did that? And this person looked at me and said, Charlie, what we're about to do in the next couple of days is going to be momentous in the peace process. So this... It was. Just, it was. It was spine uh, tingling. Right. It was actually their first IRA ceasefire. That's what it was. I, it wasn't decommissioned. It was I just.
0: So, so did they get back in the car?
1: one oh no! only my contact from Dublin. The okay. other army councilman went off into the blue yonder over a wall into the mountains someplace. Good
0: God! Wow, that's a, so. I, I'm trying to get a sense of the the role that you had. By the way, had. I was in Kenny.
1: Sorry, Fergus, I was in Kenny Bunkport
0: on my holidays. on one occasion,
1: like driving down the main street, when my phone rang and the IRA were ringing me
0: give me a statement. So, so what then? You, you, well, I had to you, park you, the car and, had to work. and
1: then phone Dublin with it.
0: Wow! So you're you're all you're on call. So yeah. I I'm just trying to get a sense. Was this a full-time gig or were you still mm. doing things? Oh, this no, was, was a little it. aspect of it. Like
1: oh, only a tiny aspect. Okay. Oh, no, only a tiny aspect. No, you, every
0: a... day you were doing the, you were doing your job reporting oh, yeah, yeah. on other matters. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, mightn't have, I mightn't have had a statement from the IRA. I met anybody for four or five months. Okay. And no, when, no,
0: no, no. So I, what I was going to ask was, and, and I think you've kind of answered it there. Like if some if I was to see Charlie Bird going into a pub, with some shady looking fella doesn't that appear that maybe this is something about the ira but maybe it wasn't that obvious like no I, saying, be. I
1: went to i went to some of the remote parts of the country i drove all over the place uh to remote remote by the way every time, in any of the big occasions when i got a statement from the ira the next day the guards would turn up an rt asking me um who I met, or w- w- when did you meet them? That and I would say, listen, I'm not revealing my journalistic sources.
0: So, so you you the, you would be pressed by the by the Guardian. On, on well, they like never. That. They
1: they they had to do it. They they had to be seen to do it because, because said, Yeah,
0: because
1: I was telling, I was saying, I met the IRA yesterday. So an illegal yes. organisation, but in a way, to be honest, every even the guards, This is all part of the playing out of the peace process. But they did come. I don't. Not saying every occasion, but yes, I often had, you know, the reception authority telling me there's uh, two policemen down there to see you, and I'd go down. They'd say, "How are you, Charlie? Listen, your statement last night. Do you mind us asking uh, where you met this person? Do you know who they were?" And I'd say, "I'm sorry, uh, I can't tell you that, and I don't reveal my sources,"
0: I'd like a good journalist. Yeah. <laughs> so did how did that compare in terms of how how safe you felt you know you've been all over the place and in all sorts of war-turned places and with refugees and incredibly impoverished people and and you've i'm sure you've had your your few maybe run-ins with um or have you with with a kind of a a situation where you're like geez i might not make it out of here you know did you have any kind of situations like that
1: yeah i mean i i have to say this, this is really important i was not a war correspondent and um uh, in fact, the other day, one of the most incredible war correspondents, and I knew of him slightly, I knew him, I knew him to say hello to him, Bob Fisk, who I who was really one of the most incredible journalists. So I wasn't a war correspondent. And there's um, Orla Guerin, who works for the BBC, who used to work on RTE. I mean, they're real war correspondents. They put themselves in peril. And there's also the correspondents doing it today in hairy situation so I wasn't that but yeah I I covered I was in Somalia I was in places I was involved in I covered the the two gulf wars so yeah I was in situations which were hairy but I wasn't there permanently so I was not a war correspondent I wasn't a hero in any sense but yeah Fergus you know the last job that I covered nearly before I left RTE uh, in Washington was the Haiti earthquake You know, 230,000 people died in Haiti in one moment like that. When I got to Haiti, every place you looked, every single place, there were dead people all over the place. You know, it's hard to imagine.
0: And nothing prepares you for that. You know, you can't. Think
1: think about it. 230,000 is almost a quarter of a million people.
0: Mm.
1: Who died in one moment. I covered, the, city, yeah. uh, I covered the uh, tsunami, the Asian, uh, the, the Asian tsunami. Mm. I was in Sri Lanka a couple of days after that happened. And I eventually went to Banda Aceh and other places. So, yeah, over the years, I was in strange places. I was in um, the Middle East uh, quite a lot uh, during the Gulf War. But I wasn't, to be honest, I was not in peril. Okay. Um, there were once or twice I was in hairy situations. Once okay. or twice, sorry, one of the most hairy situations I was ever in was in Bogota when the so-called IRA three um, were there, and uh, we were standing outside the prison, and um, it, you know there were things happening. So yeah, I put myself in 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 a, in a bit of danger, but
0: not. I'm, I'm not Nothing crazy a, like yeah, you weren't no, okay. yeah, no. okay. I, I, yeah. were doing okay. Okay. So and you're
1: clearly I want yeah, I I to applaud the real people who still, and that's the great thing about journalism. People put themselves in peril to report the facts and Mm. to see things that are happening on the ground. And we need journalists to do that.
0: Mm.
1: We need courageous journalists and journalists have lost their lives and are still losing their lives uh, who are prepared to risk uh, reporting the facts. And that's what's important that um, we have people uh, who are prepared to do that and news organizations who are also prepared to risk and to put their people out in the field and try to protect them mm. but it's uh, it's really important
0: no it's it's a uh, precarious stuff obviously you have charlie uh, clearly a, a knack for storytelling and it seems like you're in a you're well placed in the career that you were in and i'm wondering do you miss that that role that you played in your life, but also in Irish life, and that sort of position that you held like, are, are, are you glad to kind of have a break and, and, yeah, I, that, mean, I'm
1: not, I mean, I mean, people used to refer to me, and I'm not blowing my own trumpet, as a national treasure. I mean, yeah, and I was popular. I got on. But I mean, Fergus, I mean, this is, I'm saying this honestly. I mean, when I started out in Ortee, I won the lotto. I won the lotto by getting a job on RTE. In my ambition, I, I failed every exam I ever did in my life. I know the people who are listening to this podcast, if they know what your primary is, if they know what your inter is, if they know what your leaving cert, I failed all of those exams. Every single one of them. I couldn't spell. I couldn't add up. And yet, in a way, I used my fingernails to claw into a job in 1974 that I never looked back on and that, um, you know, I ended up getting an honorary doctorate. I'm Dr. Burke.
0: I know what you mean. <laughs>
1: from, so, from UCD. Yes. And I, and I would never use the title or anything like that, but I've, I've been fortunate. So, you know, when you do something for 38 years, you know it's your time to move on. Mm. There are other people and there are mm. good people um, who who are now, I mean, Ortiz, um, Brian O'Donovan, who's orty's Washington correspondent now. He's brilliant. I love him. He's brilliant.
0: I know what I you mean. mean. There he's are a, people there. He's a, bit
1: quirky. he's a bit quirky. Mm-hmm. But so was I. But that, yeah. that's what life is about. We all move on and we have to allow other people to develop and to move in. So I've had my day in the sun in that sense, being a journalist. And, you know, I still retain it. And, you know, I'm fairly vocal in Ireland today, about COVID, and um, uh, you know, it's it's something which has me exercised. And um, about COVID, we're all living through a pandemic. So I mean, I'm still exercised, and I still use whatever I can. But I, I want to. I've I've had my I've had I've had my career, and I'm I get I'm, you. I'm, I'm I'm so happy. I've and you're at peace.
0: Career. You're at peace yeah. with what you've done, and yeah. and that you did a good job. Yeah. But it's it's okay to to move on yeah like you say yeah
1: absolutely yeah certainly in every one of us none of us can stay forever None exactly age moves us and whatever and you keep in your head and things that move move on for you and you know if you are uh, in one sense it's hard, it would be hard even for me to to um uh to pinpoint the highlights of my career but i can i give you one story of course go yes okay one story is that one of my some people say you you do you, you ever want to meet your heroes? Well, I was in the fortunate position. Sorry, and I'm I'm going to say I was in South Africa with a man called Sean O'Rourke, and with Brian Dobson, when the South African the Democrat, first democratic elections took place, right. I don't know if you're aware of, of the
0: democratic elections taking place. Is this 94 For, as well? Yes, yes. That was yes. a big year then, Charlie. If, if That was yeah. the IRA ceasefire year as well. Yeah. 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 So in
1: 1994, I was in, and I was sent to a place called, uh, um, oh, in, in Anda, in, up out near, near Durban, uh, in KwaZulu-Natal, to watch um, Nelson Mandela, cast his vote he was casting his vote and the world's media was there it was at six o'clock in the morning high up in the mountains in this most remote remote part of south africa and nelson and the world's media were all there were sh- showing it live all over the world nelson mandela just think of it the man who spent what was it 29 years or whatever it was in Robben island in prison and when his motorcade stopped he didn't stop at the polling at the at the door to the polling station he stopped about 300 yards back from it and who was standing in right there with our camera we thought we were so far back we'd see nothing charlie bird and rte he got out of his car he was getting out to go around the back of a building to visit the grave of one of his ANC colleagues before he cast his historic vote. And I shouted at him, Mr Mandela, who are you going to vote for? Who are you going to vote for? And he laughed. And do you know what happened about a couple of years after that? His book, his famous book, Long Walk to Freedom, uh, was published. And in that, he describes how a cheeky journalist shouted out to him, who was he going to vote for?
0: So he remembered you.
1: Well, he remembered the story. Yes. And at the time, there was a, a, one of the ministers in his government was uh, Cader Asmal, famous Cader Asmal, who was head of the anti-apartheid movement in Ireland, who went back to South Africa to join Mandela's government. And he was the minister for water affairs and something else. And so I knew Katar uh, and I asked him if he would get Mandela to sign his book for me. And I have, sitting upstairs, Nelson Mandela's famous book, Long Walk to Freedom, and it's signed by Nelson Mandela to me. And I can find the page where he refers to the cheeky reporter. So, you know, things sometimes happen. Yes. Things sometimes happen. And I'll tell you another story. How long more have you got to go?
0: Charlie, as long as you have. Okay. But no, well, keep, the, the more stories, this is, this is what it's all about. So, yeah, keep okay, going. Okay,
1: well, sorry, the other thing was that eventually... In two weeks' time, Mary Robinson, on the 3rd of December, uh, Mary Robinson, it'll be the 30th anniversary of when Mary Robinson was inaugurated as the first female president of Ireland. Anyway, I covered Mary Robinson's visit to South Africa to meet Nelson Mandela. And she went down to Cape Town to meet him, and we were there ahead of it, the Orti camera crew and a few others, and... A chap called Ed O'Loughlin, I don't know if Ed works in America anyway, from the Irish Times. And there was a reporter from a freelance reporter from the Independent there as well. And we were all in a small room waiting for Mary Robinson's plane to land. And Mandela walks into us to say hello to us. In the tiny room. So he says hello and he's talking and he's walking around and he shakes hands with people and we're having this conversation. And he looks at, I can't think of her name now, I should, it'll, I'm, I'm slightly embarrassed, but at the female reporter and he says uh, there, twinkle twinkles his eye, he says, are you married? And she says, no, she's a young girl, no, 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 I'm not. Anyway, a couple of hours later, I was on doing a news broadcast into the news at 1.30 and I'm nearly certain the anchor for it was a man called Sean O'Rourke. And I tell the story about how Nelson Mandela, oh, he said, sorry, what he said to her was, oh my God, uh, if I wasn't married, I'd, I'd marry you.
0: And wasn't he and married I, a few times? So maybe, yeah, maybe he would have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I
1: said, I said on, the, on the airwaves, I said, oh, Mandela proposed to the Irish reporter. It went all over the world. <laughs> it went all over wow. the world. That funny story. Yes. But these are the things that you just, you know, these are sometimes the things that stick in you who are amazing.
0: So you were the fly on the wall, you know, in in a number of rooms when they say, oh, to be that, you know, and and you really seem to have got a kick out of that, which is lovely Mm. that you see someone so, you know, content in in their, in all that, you know.
1: who are the people that impressed you so most when they came into a room? Well, I can tell you, when Nelson Mandela walked into the room, you knew you were in the presence of greatness. And there's few. I mean, the other person for me would be Barack Obama, but they're the two who stand out for me, and in the international stage. Now, in Ireland, there was a few people, but, um, you know, they, they, um. By the way, this is an important thing. I just want to roll back on one thing. We're talking about the journalists, the war correspondents. But it's really important as well that I make this point. You know, Ireland has had an amazing tradition over the years of sending, first of all, they sent um, missionary priests and nuns to strange places. But over the last 20, 30 years, um, people who worked for NGO organisations like the Red Cross, Trocra, Concern, all of those, um, uh, you know, they they have um, they have been amazing. They have gone into troubled places. They have risked their lives. And, you know, there was a young Irish nurse who lost her life in uh, Somalia, who was who was shot dead. She was from Wexford working in one of the Dublin hospitals, and, you know. So it's not just journalists And in Ireland. We know had mean. a great we've had a great tradition, an amazing tradition. Of sending people to all parts of the world to help out, to help the needy and to make sure that they are looked after. And, you know, we, we, are, we are really special in that area. When I mean special, I mean in, in this powerful sense. Yes. We are really good. So it's not just war correspondents, it's I get the you. NGOs who go there.
0: Getting the hands dirty. Ass-
1: yeah, and they do it. And, sorry, and, and other countries do it. They do it in America as well. They send people abroad to do things. And most countries do it, and that is what is absolutely fantastic about, in a way, you know when all the grubbiness of what's happening in America is going on now, there is the good side to, to life mm. that people do things and they help one another and we still make sure we try and you know find out you know what's happening in Gaza. I've been to Gaza a number of times and it's the scariest place in my life. Mm. I was scared shitless going into Gaza. Mm. Uh, and um, it just, so they, you know we Ireland has had a great tradition as a country
0: uh, of doing things like that just yeah. for the um, if anyone's curious <clears throat> on the Trump thing I, I, I would like to point out and now this I'm not saying this is gospel by any stretch but there is a bizarre disconnect between uh, the narratives on the Trump thing which has been most clearly shown post-election i think um where one side is claiming obviously victory and 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 that's that and then it's like oh without evidence they're claiming this and that i would encourage people to have a look (coughs) and listen to sydney powell's interview uh, with newsmax yesterday could be a load of baloney but it will be worth listening to and you won't hear it um, on RT, or, well, sorry, I saw and all that.
1: Of, I, I, I saw a bit of the Newsmax interview today.
0: Yeah, what did you make of it, Charlie? Actually, I'm Shit. glad you saw that now. Shit. You think it's horse? A lot, a lot yes, of crap.
1: I do, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, well, I suppose we'll, we'll find out way, yeah, in, in due course.
1: Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I do. I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is a. Oh, sorry. What was it? The guy, he, the man who runs it now. He 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 did something seven years ago or ten years ago about somebody been killed and when he wasn't listen fergus anyway look everybody i understand that the process has to work itself out i understand that the process has to work itself out but you know it's we are what you do it in an honorable way you do things in an honorable way you just don't try and say that was it hugo chavez or somebody else that they tried eight years ago to get the Michigan to buy to tell somebody to dicky up the machines for the election mm. 7 years hence i mean mm. that's all come on that's just we have well to there are
0: the... serious there are serious questions i think and look it's not in a certain sense it's not our problem you know but but there are serious questions to be asked i think about how the voting is done it, it there isn't a centralized like it's very funny just anecdotally you've obviously been to election counts in ireland where yes. you can literally watch in person when the votes are being counted one by yeah. one and there's there's no it's 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 in in a sense it's backward the americans would see that as very primitive because they do things with computers yeah, and but, machines. They did, but, four years but, but ago, it, it but, works you know and yeah, and, and, and it's ago, there's it's four gas years, but
1: four years ago donald trump won using the same machines they use well, the absolutely machines. and, and, they, and used, they sorry no hold on yes. they the, same, the same machines in florida
0: yes now Tell I, I will. Use... No, yeah. no, hold
1: on. Now they use the same machines for Lindsey Graham to get elected, for yes. for, for for Republican senators and House representatives to get elected. They same machines. Yes. Now, you turning around and telling me that there's some conspiracy? That no, I, I that
0: I'm a, I'm not telling anything. I, I, just... I know. I'm
1: just anyway. Listen, let's move on.
0: No, let's move on. But I I do think that that the inability. Whoever's right, Charlie, the, the two narratives are so incredibly at odds with each other. Oh, there's something, that. do you know what I mean? And and, yeah, and there I is a that. complete yeah, absence sorry. of of a common... Off,
1: I and, started off this interview with you telling you I didn't sleep last night for a couple yes. of hours. I'm sitting at home in Wicklow and I'm worried about what's going to happen in America. Yes. I'm worried about what's going to happen. Yeah, no matter what happens,
0: you know, it's it's, it's precarious. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree with you. I, I, I want to ask you... Um, what sort of reaction have you got on the phone and in text, but also bumped into people to your recent kind of statements on the virus? Like you said, you've been vocal on how we're viewing a certain section of the population and and all that. So, what's what's that been like for you?
1: Well, I'll tell you. First of all, let me let me be really frank. When this when the when the lo- first lockdown came here in March, we weren't. Uh, uh, um, Go two kilometers from your house. That was it. But what they said was that if you were over 70, you were to stay in your house. Now, I'm 71. By the way, I'm going to be blunt. I'm, my wife is 50. She goes to work every day. And I live in a small cul de sac where the oh, people are all in the same age. Some of them were so scared. I, we have a huge green area. They didn't even walk outside their door, mm. and after four weeks, it suddenly became clear. We were told that seventy-year-olds; it was not mandatory. Listen to me; it was not mandatory for you to uh, stay inside. You could, of course, go outside, but they 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 deliberately they deliberately did something. I mean, if they'd made it mandatory, well, that was fine. But they didn't.
0: And, those, and they deliberately was, did what? Misled they, you or...
1: they, 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 they didn't clarify it. They didn't clarify it.
0: And what was and there think were, the motive? People were
1: so afraid. People didn't move outside their house. Even in a, in a rural area.
0: Hmm.
1: Even in a rural area, people didn't move outside their house. So put it this way. I've been um, vehemently opposed to the principle of cocooning. If you're unwell, no matter what age you are, you exactly. have to protect yourself. But the idea that you just throw the key away on everybody who's 70 years and over is wrong. Mm. I believe it is wrong. Mm. Now, thankfully, they've changed that. At one stage, we were, are you, Fergus, you think I'm going to, what well, I'm going to say next, you think that I'm, I'm making this, Oh, so I'm not. A senior government official, when they eventually allowed people to walk out to go a couple of kilometers, this senior government person, and I quote said, people who are, uh, 17 over shouldn't stop and talk to anybody. Don't stop and talk to anybody. You can be eight feet, or, eight meters across from one side of the road yeah. to the other, and they were actually saying, "Don't talk. Don't say hello." I mean, it, there were things done that were crazy. Now I understand we're in the height of a pandemic, and I believe in wearing my mask. I have one here. Mm. I wash my hands. I do all things, so I'm not anti-mask. I get you. I'm I'm pro. I'll take the injection when it comes. I but what I want is people to be sensible. That we have to try and bring people along. And Fergus, at the moment in Ireland, and I, I don't, I, I'm watching what the situation. Ireland is a divided country. Divided. It's like a civil war. Anybody who raises any question, um, questioning the 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 NEPH, the organisation who who gives the advice to the government they're basically considered loopers Mm. because everybody is so frightened from morning, noon and night on all the broadcasting organisations non-stop. We're being scared to death.
0: Mm.
1: Scared to death. Now, we have to be worried. I'm Mm. absolutely sorry. I don't believe we have to be worried. We have, but we also have to, we have to have people's mental health. Exactly. Young people. You can't demonise young people all the time. In fact, there was a, a suggestion a couple of months ago, I don't know where you were at the time, when, when the students went back in Galway and they were seen around the Spanish Arch having a couple of beers. One senior politician said the army or the police should be brought, brought out with water cannon. Yeah. No, come on. No,
0: I know, I know would no, that's bad stuff.
1: Would, sorry, what would have been better is that if they'd taken over one of the big um, football pitches in Galway and put chairs and tables out and said go in there for two hours you sit part and have your couple of beers and then go home do it the other way around maybe try and bring the work bring with bring people w- bring people in don't mm. demonize young people and don't demonize 70 year olds don't demonize anybody that's so all when, i'm
0: saying when you say the country in ireland what is, I mean is it's, when you do you do you mean that there's a what, what do you mean? Like, is there, is well, there tell you. an underbelly, you. you know, what's that like? No, I'm sorry. We, we,
1: we shouted everybody. There's a big, <laughs> there's a big issue going on at the moment because there was a going away due in RTE the other day. I don't know if many people who's going to be listening to this and, you know, Brian Dobson and um, Miriam O'Callaghan, David McCullough and Eileen Dunne, they all had to apologise. Now, sure, they made a mistake. Have you ever made a mistake in your life?
0: I know, Charlie, yeah, I know. I I have. have. Yes. I have. Yeah.
1: We all make mistakes. And we have to be able to forgive and to extend the hand of friendship and something say, okay, listen, you made a mistake. Okay, I understand that. Or he has to be, well, I don't believe they have to be held to higher standards than anybody else. Everybody has to be, everybody, I understand. But what we don't need to do is to have a rabble once somebody does something, oh, take them out. The Twitter storm. What?
0: The Twitter Twitter storm. storm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's frightening. It's scary. Mm. But it's not only in Twitter.
0: Yeah. And and the thing is, Charlie, you you could be next. You know, it could happen to anyone.
1: Sure, of course. Somebody will probably be listening to me now. Mm. And whenever it is in an hour's time, I'll be looking up this and they'll say something else. Mm. I've had this all my life because... As a journalist, yeah, I've been controversial. I've done this and I've been a bit outspoken. And the other thing is, I used to get given out because I, I, I used to I used to joke about, oh, Charlie Bird shouts out loud. Mm. He's, um, you know, he's, a, he's um... anyway, I understand. So that must be,
0: yeah, th- this is a new thing then that clearly didn't exist in, in 1970, whatever, 74, you said, yeah. when you started. That 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 is definitely a shift. In, yeah. in the way we communicate oh, Jesus,
1: I would hate to be I would hate to be uh, in a way a, a reporter now because if you did anything you're you are certainly could be I mean I know I spoke to a reporter yesterday who told me that she went off Twitter she did something and um, she was trawling whatever it was and she said she was upset she cried for three days three days because she said something that wasn't some people didn't like you know and um, I mean, we, Fergus, we must have humanity. We must have, and I understand, and I'm going back to the COVID, I understand it's difficult for the politicians. And I'm not drawing everything at NEPAD or if you want it, Fauci in, in, in the United States. I mean, all these people, they, they do, and I accept that. But, but journalism must still question. We report the facts, but when we're doing other things, we must continue to question. And the stronger you question somebody, the better their response is and the clearer it becomes. It's not just propaganda and you have to be able to do that.
0: Yeah. And sometimes if, if the question is too good for a good answer, then it requires, you know, further scrutiny. But if the question isn't yeah. asked, we don't really, we don't yeah. take a second look yeah. Yeah. for yeah. sure. Well, Charlie, um, you're clearly full of life and, um, I really enjoyed this an awful lot. Uh, you have a great warmth and enthusiasm and vigor, uh, which, even though we are what four thousand miles away, you know, it, it still spreads, you know, through oh, the. Oh, I'm worried about you. Through the I'm ether, worried about, I'm worried about you and your.
1: What was the name that news organization? Well, see, this is it's funny I'm you ask. You, no, I, it, you.
0: I can I can handle that, Charlie. You know, but um, I'm you. you know, there there's talk, and, and this was one of the comments on one of my videos <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago that some people say even Fox have gone um obviously you'd be aware that they are typically more conservative and oh, cnn and the like oh, yeah, you know yeah, that yeah. but you know that but but there are some who say that fox have kind of betrayed their uh, roots and and the the only resistance i mean again this is so dangerous to even go there because it's it's so fringe but the whole trump thing newsmax are covering that in a way that that no one else is and look i'm i'm not pinning my my colors to the mast at all but I do think that there's more to the story, uh, and and that we should just monitor that. And and again, take take Sydney Powell with a pinch of salt, and and disregard her. And and you clearly were willing to watch her, you know. But but most people don't even know that there is this ongoing process taking place. And and I just think it's worth worth pointing out that that's all. And um, but but again, but I can
1: I say one thing to you.
0: Of course, yeah. You know
1: what I mean. Donald Trump used to, well, sorry, maybe Donald Trump, I mean, I want to be careful how I phrase this, but he, grabbing the crotch of a woman, you know, know, he, he has lowered the standards. In in, in in both before going into the White House and in the White House. And you know the abiding memory for me of this week? There's only one image. And it'll probably be the image of the whole election for me. And that is of Rudy Giuliani. With his eyes popping out and the black streaks running down both sides
0: of his head. Did you see them? No. What what are you referring to?
1: Have you not seen the photograph of Rudy Giuliani?
0: No, I, I actually don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but but Fergus, what, what, what was that?
1: Fergus, sorry, Fergus. Rudy, God, I'm telling you. I don't know where you've been. He gave no, a, yeah, under a, under a rock, a Charlie. Hour. Yeah. He gave a one and a half hour press conference.
0: No, I saw that. The... But what's the black streaks?
1: Well, did you not see the image of him? The, the dye ran down both sides of his face. Oh, wow. I didn't it's see that. It's all over the world. It's all over the world. Okay. Now here is Sorry, it's a bit. It's more. But sorry, just, I'm missing
0: the point, Charlie. What What's the point the with the of the reflection? Okay. It's
1: the image of him. Okay. No, he spent an hour and a half. Um, I actually saw bit of
0: that. The press conference. I know what you're talking. Yeah. About. Go on, yeah.
1: Yeah, he spent an hour, an hour and forty, whatever it was. But mm-hmm. just the, any that one image of him. It's an abiding image. Yes. Um. I. I my thing that I'm, I'm. I. woke up this morning and I was really upset. We, I'm, we're, I'm finishing this. Uh, this talk to you now. Okay. No, go on, yeah. I yeah. I I I woke up this morning really upset. You know why I was so upset? hi There was no Saturday Night Live. Oh wow. Uh, None. It must be Thanksgiving. Mm,
0: that's and the other up, thing yeah. is
1: the only thing is and the other thing is that I've become a big, big fan, Fergus, of the Lincoln Project.
0: Okay. The Lincoln Project. Well, Charlie, I've, you better come go on, yeah. I, I actually tried to
1: get a Lincoln Project t-shirt so and my deal to you now is for this I want somebody in who's in America because you you can't buy one in Ireland but I want somebody to buy me a Lincoln Project t-shirt and send it But Charlie
0: how about this I can send you that and then when I come home you can buy me a pint and uh we'll we'll have a point to get us in johnny Fox's. the lincoln project
1: t-shirt for a large for a man you see you go you go online because you're living in ireland they won't accept it it only costs seven or eight dollars okay but i want a lincoln project and can i
0: send you a trump hat too no (laughs) you can put it up beside the obama thing no 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 obviously only messing charlie this has been great fun thanks a million i'm gonna stop the stream and um Best of luck to you. You are listening to the Logos Broadcast with Fergus James Murphy.